Well, welcome again to Missio Church. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the elders here, and we are excited that you have joined us to worship our great King. Um, Our text for this morning is found in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. We're going to be reading about the triumphal entry. Uh, I recognize that uh, this is a Palm Sunday text, and we are the week after Easter. But hey, it snowed yesterday, and so everything is very Syracuse, New York-y. So we're going to roll with it, right? Um, That's just the way it's going to be. So um, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, this is the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, in Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying that colt? And they told them what Jesus had said to them. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name, and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for all that you're doing, and we thank you for all that you will do, for you have promised much in your word. Father, we thank you for this text for what it declares about your son, Jesus, about this king, our king, the king. We thank you for the fact that he rules over all, that he has redeemed a people to himself, and that he is restoring all things back to you. We ask now that your spirit would continue to conform us into your image, that your spirit would continue to convince us of who you are, that your spirit would continue to convict us of sin and of righteousness, and that we would be transformed by your word. And Father, if there are any in this room today who have yet to to really understand the nature of this king, that today would be the day that you open their eyes to to King Jesus, that today would be the day that they understand their need for a Savior, and that today would be the day that they say, yes, Jesus. And we pray this not just for our time in this place, but we pray that you would, that you would save men and women, boys and girls, throughout this city, throughout this region, throughout this nation, and throughout the world, that you would continue to advance your kingdom for your name, for your glory. And it's in the name of our King Jesus that we pray. Amen. 
the triumphal entry. This is an interesting text as we look at it. Uh, easy to just kind of read it and to think, um, okay, there's some details here and we're going to move on. Um, and yet, um, if you look closely at it, there's much to be said about what it declares um, about Jesus, about who he is, um, how it ties many of these images um, about the nature of his kingship, and then um, some details about um, what he's doing. Um, and so the context here is Passover, and right now we are just ending Passover. Uh, and so what we have here is the true Passover lamb uh, who is entering into uh, the city. We have the true temple, uh, Jesus uh, about to enter the temple, and we have a king who's coming into a royal city. Um, but instead of a throne, um, he's, he's seeking the cross, and that's, that's the emphasis of Mark's gospel, is that Jesus is um, heading uh, to the cross um, with great intentionality and the, the, um, the effects of that cross. And so um, what you have in Mark's gospel, so Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, and, I, in, in, and as we've been teaching through Mark's gospel, we've wanted, and I think that this is important, um, even though those three gospels are connected to each other as the synoptic gospels, we, we've wanted Mark's gospel to kind of stand on its own. Um, and, and what you see in, in, in both Matthew and Luke is... Um, uh, is, a, is a direct quotation from Zechariah, and I think it's important that we um, actually go back and look at what Zechariah says, um, because this text finds a lot of meaning in what Zechariah says. And in Zechariah chapter 9, we see um, where uh, the idea of kingship and this text come together. In Zechariah 9, um, Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Right? So the idea that, that a king would come, this righteous king announcing a kingdom, um, would come righteous and bringing with him salvation, and that he would come in a humble nature, right? And, and that is what we see, these elements of Jesus um, bringing with him a kingdom, uh, a kingdom that, that is unlike um, a kingdom that, that the people would be anticipating, and that he would come into Jerusalem. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has been to Jerusalem, but this is, the, this is a, a coming into Jerusalem with intentionality and purpose, right? So earlier in gospel narratives, we've seen Jesus in Jerusalem as a child, but this is the time that he's coming full, um, bringing with him the kingdom of God, right? And he comes humbly on a donkey, right? So, uh, or on a colt. All right, whether this is a, um, uh, how, how you interpret that idea of a cult is, is up to you. So what I want to do is look at some of the images that we see here and whatnot. But beginning in Mark chapter 8, the tail end of Mark chapter 8, you see the images of the announcement of the kingdom of God coming um, with, with greater intentionality um, as Mark builds what he's 
doing here. So at the, at the, at the back end of 8, um, you see that the Son of Man is going to come in his glory. And, and, and in the very early parts of 9, it, we, we see kingdom language. And then in, in Mark chapter uh, 10, you see uh, 9 and 10, you see the disciples asking for positions of power when he comes in his kingdom. You see the transfiguration earlier than that. And then you see uh, Bartimaeus all right, in the text that we looked at before talk about the fact that Jesus was the son of David, right? This idea of, of, of kingdom language. He's the son of a king. And now you have Jesus entering into Jerusalem in this, this text. Now, there's nothing overt. Mark doesn't say anything overt that would lead you to think king entering into a city. But there's a lot of hidden pictures in this um, text as well as understanding other things that, that cause us to understand that this is a, this is a, a kingly text, right? So I want to look at those, those things that we see here. Number one, you see that um, Jesus stops at the Mount of Olives, right? Um, he comes here, um, it says this, that when he drew near to Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, this is where then Jesus sends these disciples out. So he stops at the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is, is a mountain, uh, mountain. It's, it's a hillside um, that's just east of Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, I've had the privilege of being there. And so you get to the Mount of Olives as you're coming up to Jerusalem. Now, he's been in Jericho, which is down, Jericho is, um, of all the cities in the world, Jericho is the lowest below sea level in all of the world. And, um, and so he's been in Jericho. That's where Bartimaeus receives back his sight. And then he comes up um, this hillside um, up to the Mount of Olives, this long trek up a, up a mountain, up a hill. Uh, mountain, it's hard to say mountain if you've ever seen a real mountain. Uh, this is not a real mountain, but nonetheless, he comes up to the Mount of Olives, and at the Mount of Olives, you get this picture. You're overlooking now the city of Jerusalem, and you can see everything. Like, you can see you know, everything. Uh, you got this great view of the Temple Mount, you get this great view of, of not all of the gates because that would mean you'd be able to see all around the city. You can't, but you can see the gate that Jesus would probably enter into the city and you can, you can look down into Jerusalem. I can remember when, when Murphy and I were, 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 were doing some promotional videos that we were going to be talking about. Like if you ever go back into the archives and find the videos that we did to promote what we were going to do when we were going to plant this church, we, we, Murphy shot some stuff up in Strathmore and Onondaga Park, like overlooking the city. Now, he did like one and a half minute worth of video but it took him like six hours because the fool could not get his words right, right? So we stood up there. over. I had this great view of Syracuse for hours, right? Jim was impeding my view for a long time, right? Uh, and, 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 and we got many, many um, interesting comments from residents uh, that were coming back and forth. But we, we tried to find the most picturesque view of Syracuse that Jim could be talking about as he was casting vision for what we were going to do, right? So that's like the Mount of Olives. Like, you can see this great view of Jerusalem. Now, the reason the Mount of Olives is important is because the Old Testament talks about the Mount of Olives, right? And, and, and it's this, this place where, where Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 11, talks about the fact that he's got this vision, right? When, when he sees the temple, he's got this vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. 
and, and leaving the temple that was uh, 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 currently there just before it was destroyed, leaving the temple, and, and uh, this is in Ezekiel chapter 11, I think, verse 23, and, and, and then coming and resting upon the Mount of Olives, right, in the day of the Lord, when the, when, when the Lord would come. And then in, in, in Zechariah chapter 14, Right? That the, that the kingdom, that the judgment of the Lord, Zechariah 14, 4, that the judgment of the Lord would be ushered in, right, from the Mount of Olives. So this is an important place in understanding the kingdom of God and what God was going to do in ushering in not only um, uh, the idea of, of, of where the glory of the Lord would be in relation to the temple, which I'm going to contend, and I think we've been contending, Jesus is the true temple, right? And we're going to see that in relation in, in just a few minutes. But also um, the idea of the kingdom of God, which is something that Jesus ushers in, um, this idea that he's bringing with him the kingdom of God, which is a reality that we live in and we will live in, right? We live now in, in, in the kingdom of God because of what Jesus accomplishes on the cross, and we will one day live fully in um, a realized expression of the kingdom of God, right? And so he stops at the Mount of Olives, this place that the scripture talks about being an important place, right? Um, at least in the mind of the, of, of the Jewish people. And it's a beautiful place. Like, if you ever have the opportunity to go and see it, right? Like, it's a beautiful place um, and, uh, and whatnot. And so that's where Jesus then sends these disciples out. And he sends them out to go get this colt, right? And, uh, he, and he's going to ride into, right? He's going to go down the Mount of Olives. And, and it's not like this is, like in my mind before I ever went there, I always thought like this was like close. It's not like close. It's like, it's, a, it's a, still a trek. Like he's got to go down this hill and he's going to go through this gate. So man, like I'd want to ride something too. I don't know that I'd want to ride a, an animal. I'd really rather be in a car, but he didn't have that option. So an animal would be better than my feet. So he sends them to go get a colt. And he says certain things, like he sends them to go get a colt, which it's an interesting thing, like um, in Genesis 49, when Jacob blesses um, Judah, right, he references the fact, he references this idea of, of riding in on a colt, right? So Jesus is, he's, he's, the, he's, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? So there's this illusion there. And then the idea that this colt, is, is got to be a cult that hit, no one has ever ridden, right? Now, there's this detail, right? Jesus gives these details. Thought you'd be like, man, why has it got to be a cult that no one's ever ridden? Like, man, can't I just go get the first cult I find? Why you got to be so particular? Right? Numbers chapter 16 and Deuteronomy chapter 21 both give us this, this idea that in, in the sacrificial system, Right? Um, animals that are, are going to be used as sacred animals, right, in, in worship, have to be animals that no one has ever ridden, right? These, these animals have to be animals that are unblemished, animals that have never been used. And so Jesus is saying that not only am I going to come in as a king, and we're going to see some allusions to that, but this is an act of worship as well. Right? And, and then in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, when, when the ark of the Lord is, is being brought back, 
right? When they send um, uh, uh, the carts to bring the ark of the Lord back from the Philistines, um, uh, they, 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 they get two cows that have never been ridden. And I think that, that, that again, when we talk about Jesus being the temple in, in, in a few moments, right, the ark of the covenant the, um, is, is, is placed in the temple in the holy of holies. And it is the place where the spirit of God touches um, the earth. It is, it is the place where, where God's spirit, God's presence dwells. And it rides upon unridden, right? It rides on a cart, but it's led by by, by animals that have never been ridden by anything else. And so Jesus is saying, I am the ark. I am the temple who's about to come in to the holy city. And I am going to ride on an animal that has never been ridden. Right? So the colt that I am going to ride in on needs to be a colt that has never been ridden upon. So they go and they find this colt, right? It's a sacred colt, right? Um, and he is going to ride in a manner that is like worship. And he's going to ride in a manner like the ark rode into Jerusalem, right? Because he is the true temple, right? Um, he, he's going to ride in a manner that's kingly uh, as well, um, uh, kings. And we're going to see some allusions to this again later, but kings... Um, according to the Mishnah, the, the, the oral tradition, kings were to ride on animals that no one had ever ridden on as well. And so Jesus, in saying, bring me a colt, bring me an animal that no one has ever ridden on, he's saying that he is both um, uh, uh, a king, but he is also um, divine. He is also the Lord God himself. He is also one to be treated as an act of worship. Right? And then he uses a title. When they, he says this in verse 3, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And they will send it, and he will send it back immediately. Right? So he invokes the title Lord for himself here. Right? He doesn't say, tell him that the teacher needs it. He says, tell him that the Lord needs it. And they'll give it to you. Now, this is a title that Mark uses five times in his gospel um, for um, God himself. And he uses it five times. Jesus uses it for himself, right? And it, it's, it could be translated as either master or Lord. We, normally in the New Testament, this word kurios is translated as, as the Lord. And so Jesus is invoking here among his disciples this term, um, not just king, but Lord, right? I am the Lord, right? Tell them, and, and he's, he's saying to his disciples, go tell them that I am the Lord, that the Lord needs it, right? And so these are interesting clues, right? That, that Jesus, and, and you notice, who is the one preparing this? This isn't something other people are doing. Jesus is making all of these preparations himself in this narrative, He's, other people aren't doing these things for him. Later we'll see a woman anoint him for burial, right? God, through her, makes these preparations. But in this particular narrative, right, in order to, to, um, to fulfill that which God's word had already declared about God's son, 
the one who makes all of the preparations is Jesus the Son. Jesus is the one who makes sure. He's the one who arranges, right, with whomever is the owner of this colt ahead of time. Look, I'm going to need this colt. My, my guys are going to come, right? And so, boom, it happens and, and all of these things. And so they come. So Jesus understands himself to be the Messianic king, and he acts accordingly, right? He knows who he is, and he acts accordingly. He's humble in all of his interactions, right? He's righteous, right, in the way that he does this. He knows what he is going to do. Number two, the disciples in the crowd Right? They welcome Jesus as king without fully understanding, I believe, what they're doing. Verses 7 through 10. Right? So they come back and it says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went out before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. So what we see is when they bring the colt to him, he, he needs something to sit on. So the disciples, right, they take their cloaks, right? They take their coats off, right? They remove part of their own identity, right? If you remember back to Bartimaeus, when Bartimaeus takes his cloak off, that's his identity. He throws it down. It's part of who he is. It's part of what defines him, right? The disciples, they take their cloaks off. They, they put their cloaks on, on, the, on, the, on the, the, the colt. Others, right, they take their cloaks and they throw it on the ground so that Jesus can walk on that rather than on the ground itself. Now, this isn't, this isn't nice new pavement, right? But that's what these people do. They, they're, they're, they're treating him with honor, they're showering him with praise. They're giving him a, a, a welcome that is befitting someone of, of honor. Now, they don't necessarily know he's a king, right? They, he could just be, it's Passover, and many people are coming into Jerusalem. Many people of honor are coming into Jerusalem. But they are, they are taking off their own cloaks, and they are, they're covering up dirt and shame, and, and, and they're giving honor to one to whom honor is, is worth, right? And in some way, they're giving, uh, they're giving worship to him. Now, again, I don't think most of these people really understood what they were really doing, who it was that was coming before him. They begin to quote out of, um, out of Psalm eight, uh, 118. I want to read Psalm 118 um, together in its totality, and then we'll focus on the verses that they read. It says, this is Psalm 118. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. Oh, the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? For the Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. 
It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is one of the, the five or six Hallel Psalms that would have been sung over pilgrims, prayed and sung over pilgrims as they were entering Jerusalem during the Passover, right? So you have groups of psalms that were sung and prayed during this time as pilgrims would come up to Jerusalem. They themselves would be praying the songs of ascent, Psalm uh, 121 to I think 135 or 136. And then there would be people who would be residents of the city as they would be coming into Jerusalem. They would be singing over them and praying over them. Psalms 113 to 118. And so we find that as Jesus is coming into um, Jerusalem, right? They're, they're praying over him, right? Psalm 118. Hosanna, they pray. Hosanna, which is save us, O Lord, right? It's a term like we say hallelujah, right? Praise Yahweh, right? Hosanna, save us, O Lord, is a common, is a common, um, uh, is a common expression in the life of, of, of a first century Jew. Um, it's something that they would say often, right? It comes right there out of Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? They're praying this psalm over him. Right? And then, they, then Mark records this kind of doublet of that idea. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Right? So they're, they're praying over Jesus just as they would have prayed over any pilgrim that's entering into the city at that particular time. And, and yet, this particular psalm that they're praying over him has tremendous 
messianic implications as they're praying about the salvation of their people and the way that God is going to redeem them, the way that God is going to save them, the way that God and God alone will deliver them and and bring his kingdom into their midst, right? I don't know that they fully understand what they're doing, right? And I think that there are people today who engage Jesus who say that they love Jesus, who say they want to follow Jesus, who say all of these positive things about Jesus, who have no clue what it means to really be a follower of Jesus, who have no clue what it really means um, that Jesus is a king, right? To have Jesus in their midst, who will, who will honor him with mouth, but not necessarily follow him with life. Recognize that a week after this event, a similar crowd will will choose a murderer over this king and shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. We don't really want that king. We would rather have a Roman king. We would rather have anything but that king in our midst, right? They welcome him as a king without fully understanding. When they throw their cloaks down, right? Like I threw my jacket down a moment ago. It references um, the welcoming of Jehu, um, we see that in, uh, in, in Kings, 2 Kings chapter 9. Um, I'll read that for you really quick. In 2 Kings 9, Elisha, um, the prophet, sends a servant to uh, Jehu, who's the son of Jehoshaphat, to crown him king. And it says in verse 11, when Jehu came out to the servants, 2 Kings 9, to the servants of his master, they said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, you know the fellow and his talk. And they said, this is not true, tell us now. And he said, thus, and so he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man took his garment and put it under the bare steps, and they blew temple, or they blew the trumpet, and they proclaimed Jehu as king. So in the throwing down of the cloaks, in the proclaiming um, of this particular psalm over Jesus, these people, without even really knowing what they're doing, are, are declaring him a king. The interesting thing about Jesus, people like me, people like you, we get caught up in flattery, right? Um, some of us more than others. I know particular people in this room that really get caught up in flattery. I'm not going to call anybody out by name, but I could look at them, but I'm choosing not to. I'm choosing not to. I'm choosing to look at the double doors in the back of the room. But those people know who they are. Some of us don't get, don't get as caught up in it as others. But Jesus is not caught up in flattery. Jesus knows the heart of men. Right? Jesus is completely consumed with what his Father has called him to do. Right? He knows the heart of men. And he's willing to die for them anyway. Right? If I knew the heart of people, I'd be like, man, forget you. I am not doing this for you. There's no way I'm doing this for you. Right? You're not going to appreciate it anyway. But that's not Jesus. Jesus looks at these people and he loves them. The last thing that we see him do is actually enter Jerusalem. Now, again, I told you, this is actually a long trek, right? And by the time he gets into Jerusalem, um, it says 
that he goes right into the temple. Now, the interesting thing about this, right, when we read verse 11, it says, and he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, this is, to me, it's a very interesting verse, um, because um, it, it's actually one of the most interesting verses in the entire gospel of Mark, because it's so unlike Mark, right? We've said this before, that Mark's gospel is fast. It's fast-moving. It's the action-paced. When you read this text in the other gospels, what you then see is the very next thing. It doesn't include this particular verse. What you see is the very next thing is Jesus enters the temple, and he begins to overturn tables, right? And he begins to, to act, right? Uh, and it looks as if, from a human perspective, he is seeing something for the very first time, and he's reacting to something, right? That he has a little bit of a temper. Now, I have a little bit of a temper. I don't know if that comes as a surprise to anybody, right? Around the office, that's called five guys. Like, I go five guys. There, there was a moment we were at five guys once. Something happened. I was right. I was right. <laughs> The key thing is I was right in my assessment of the issue. I was wrong in how I handled it, right? I got angry. I let everyone know this is how this is going to go. I did it in the wrong way. I got up from the table eventually, went next door, got myself a milkshake and calmed down. That in our little world is known as five guys, going five guys. Like that happened. Jesus does not handle things like I handle things. Thank God, right? Amen, right? But if you're ever worried that I might get angry, bring me a milkshake and I will be fine, (laughs) right? That's my deal. Or if you ever want to have a hard conversation with me, let's go to Cold Stone and I'll be good. But Jesus does not clear the temple out of some sort of emotional reaction. What Mark tells us, and again, this is very interesting because in Mark, it's always constant fluid motion. But Mark chapter 11, verse 11, has Jesus go in and stop. He goes in, he looks. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has been to the temple. Jesus is a good, upstanding Jewish man. He has made made pilgrimages to Jerusalem in the past. But again, here he is with intentionality. And he goes to the temple. Again, if this is me making this journey, I get to Bethany and I recognize there's no reason for me to go into Jerusalem now. It's like 4.30. By the time I get that donkey down there and back, it's like 8.30. I want to eat. I'll go in tomorrow. But he's like, I'm going to go in. I want to I take a look around. Because his whole purpose for going into Jerusalem is not to make some sort of um, regal entry into Jerusalem. His purpose for going into Jerusalem on this particular day is to go into the temple to take a look around. Because Jesus himself, as I have said a few times already, is the temple. Because what the temple was, what the temple represented more than anything else was not a place for the people to gather, right? That is our mindset as we anachronistically look at the scriptures, as we read back through history the scriptures and we think building, 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 right? That's got to be a place for them to gather, 
And that is not the purpose of the temple at all. The purpose of the temple was always that God dwelt in the midst of his people. That the presence of God dwelt in the midst of his people. And that is what made them a distinctive people in the midst of the world. Right? That is what made them purified. That is what made them holy. Was God dwelt with them. Right? And so the true temple in, in bodily form. As John chapter 1, verse 14 says, that that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The true temple, right? Right? The Spirit of God now touching the earth. That's that's the idea of the, the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies was the place where the Spirit of God actually touches the earth. That's why the high priest, when he would go in once a year, would go in with a, a rope around his ankle so that if he went in in a way that was in any way uh, sinful or any way unholy, he would, he would die because he's in the presence of a holy God and they would have to pull him out. Right? God in the flesh is entering into the holy city, the city of our God, the place where the temple of the living God actually is. And he enters into the temple and he takes a look around and he recognizes this is not what it is supposed to be. This is not my house. This is not at all what my Father desires. And I'm going to have to come back here and do something about it. So he goes in and he finds it lacking. The true temple, right, is going to have to bring about correction. And so when he comes in, and we'll look at this text later, he doesn't come in going five guys. He doesn't need, you know, a a, a cake batter shake afterwards. Like, guys, somebody calm me down. He comes in with great intentionality and holiness to purge the people of wickedness and sin. To remind them of why they had a temple in the beginning. Right? Of what it meant to be a people who had in their midst the presence of an almighty God. That's why he goes in there. He goes in there that day to look around, to see, to observe, to understand what it is he's going to do so that he can go back with purpose, right? I think he probably already knew what he was going to do, but he goes in there so that they can see him go in there, so that when he goes in the next day, they can say, that ain't a crazy man. He was here last night, right? Everybody knew. They watched him go in. They watched him go out. And then he goes back up to Bethany and probably has a nice dinner, right, and enjoys himself. As we look at this text, I think there's some questions that we ask ourselves, right? Since he is the Messiah, the Messianic king whose kingdom is forever, we need to respond to that because that kingdom is still what we live in and is what we will live in forever. And how do I live in a kingdom Especially since we're a people that don't like kings. Oh, we're a free people. We determine our own fate. No. You're a people who live with a true king 
an eternal king, and you live in his kingdom. And if you are amongst the redeemed, he is your leader and your king. And he has a say over your life, every aspect of it. And you live in allegiance to him. And so the idea that you run things by him, like, hey, yo, what do you think about that? Like in a very casual way. Uh, That's not the way we do this. I'm submitted 100% completely to my king. And I serve at his pleasure in all things. Right? Have I welcomed him as king? Have I taken the cloak, whatever that is, whatever my identity was, whatever, whatever it meant to be who I was and thrown it down? Right? Humbling myself Making, making less of me and in, in, in making much of him and saying, no, 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 you are the king. You are the king. I, I throw down whatever I once was, whatever I held dear, whatever I continue to hold dear, whatever the things are. And in so doing, I expose myself, right? Julie and I were talking just a few minutes ago. She was wearing a, a little raincoat trying to keep herself warm. Like, that ain't going to keep you warm. Like, it's cold in here. Unless you're fat like me, like then it's not cold anywhere. But, but it's cold. We expose ourselves when we do that. We make ourselves vulnerable when we entrust ourselves to the one who, oh by the way, actually loves us. We expose ourselves. Do I understand what it means? that Jesus is king? Or do I just flail my arms up as if it's just an emotional exercise? Do I understand what it means to be submitted to him? And is everything that I do for him done intentionally and with purpose? Am I willing to conform to his kingdom as a citizen of his kingdom? Lastly, do I recognize the implications of the true temple dwelling among us and that he has now made me, right? The implication of what he did and accomplished on the cross is that now the temple of the living God is right here. Not that I'm divine, but that he's placed his spirit within me and within you and that we are now, until he comes back, we are now the temple of the living God, right? And that that. We are a distinct people in the midst of the world. Right? I mean, this is all kingdom language. Again, it's the triumphal entry. It's Palm Sunday text. It's Hosanna. It's Lord save. Yeah. There's a kingdom. And we live in it. Now we, as a people, we get caught up in all of the daily stuff. In politics and in finances and in um, school stuff and in this and in that and in sport and all of these things. But in reality, we live in a, in a true kingdom and we have a true king. And I think he calls us to take him and his kingdom seriously. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you that you are our true king and that you love us and that you have not left us alone. You sent your son to die on a cross for us, to 
to live a life that we couldn't live, perfect, holy, spotless, sinless, to be that Passover lamb for us who would take away the sins of the world. And that he hung on a cross and that he bore the wrath of God for those sins. And that he spent three days in a tomb and that he rose victorious, ushering in the kingdom of God. Now that kingdom was already there, but it's now a kingdom that we can become citizens of because now we have access through what you've done. Now your spirit calls men and women, boys and girls, into relationship with you through what your son has accomplished. We get the opportunity to be citizens of this new kingdom. Sons, daughters, heirs, vice regents, ambassadors. Lord, I pray, Father, for every person in this room that we would take that seriously. And Lord, if there are any in this room who maybe for the first time today need to say, yes, Lord, save. Hosanna. Lord, save me. Save me. Jesus, save me. That today would be the day that they, they pray that. Lord, save me. That they take that seriously. And again, Lord, we pray that that be a reality, not just here, but in every place where Jesus' name is mentioned throughout this, this city, throughout this community, throughout this region, that you would save people, that you would build your kingdom in Syracuse and in central New York, and in upstate New York, and throughout this great state, and that you would glorify yourself in, in through your people. Lord, as we continue to worship, we pray that you would be honored and magnified in that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.